I'm Kate Daniels. Concerns about our health increase as we age. One disease we hear more about these days is Parkinson's. And we have with us a pioneering brain disease researcher, Dr. Russell Lebovitz. Dr. Russell Lebovitz, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I am just so appreciative because this disease of Parkinson's seems to be more and more what prominent or we're becoming more aware of it around us in our society. And yet I dare say we don't know very much about it. So I really appreciate having you join us and give us some insights and some of your research and expertise, if you will, to help us understand what it is, what we can do for ourselves, what we can do for friends and loved ones. Great. So you started this research into Parkinson's because... Well, um, largely, like other people, I have family members who have been affected, but sometimes we work on things because we fall into something that allows us to have particular insights. And so my company and my personal uh, beginning of working on Parkinson's actually came from earlier work with my colleagues on something that people may or may not remember called mad cow disease that was very prominent in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And what we were able to do was to develop technology to understand this disease, mad cow disease, which is also a chronic brain disease that hadn't been seen before. And so what we learned from this was that mad cow disease was caused by an entirely new mechanism of disease and by understanding this we developed a test that still is the leading test for mad cow disease and we came to realize that other chronic neurodegenerative diseases including Parkinson's including Alzheimer's including others actually operated through the same mechanism that we had identified for mad cow disease. And so we were able to extrapolate those findings and develop technologies particularly suited for early detection, for accurate detection of Parkinson's, of Alzheimer's, and other chronic neurodegenerative diseases. And those are some of the real biggies, if you will, in our lives these days. And I think kind of almost strike this huge fear of, oh, heavens, don't let me have that disease. And you're saying that there is a testing mechanism. Yes. What we've come to understand is that these diseases may all start differently, and they start for a variety of reasons we can talk about in a few minutes, But once they start, they're carried throughout the brain, they spread and they propagate throughout the brain through a very unusual mechanism involving what we call protein misfolding. And in this case, there are certain proteins in the brain that behave very much like transformers in the movie or the television show in that the major change that happens to them is they flip into a different shape which has a different function. And in the neurodegenerative diseases, we've all, as a community of scientists and clinicians, we've been able to identify the major proteins capable of this transformation. And these are called generally prion-like proteins because 
actually for mad cow disease, the name prion was originally given for a protein that takes on a new shape and flips from a good guy to a bad guy. And that's what happens in Parkinson's disease, a protein called alpha-synuclein, which is spread throughout the brain and helps us with normal function, suddenly transforms into a prion-like form. And there are two properties of this prion-like form. One, it has the ability to damage nerve cells where it's present. But even more importantly, it has the ability to convert the normal forms of alpha-synuclein into the prion-like forms. So this is how it spreads from cell to cell. And our company, Amprion, has developed technology to detect at very, very low levels these misfolded prion-like forms of synuclein and other proteins that contribute to neurodegenerative disease. And prior to Amprion's technology, the flipped forms really look identical to the normal forms by all of the tools that we've developed for studying proteins over the past 50 years. So really it's Amprion's ability to develop technology that specifically recognizes very low concentrations of the misfolded protein that allows specific diagnosis. Which is all so fascinating. I want to just then take a step back. What causes, how does that misshaping, I'm going to use that easy term, misshaping, what causes it to begin? Yes, well, proteins in general have a function that's based on their shape, but most of them have a very stable shape. A handful of proteins in the body have this ability at low frequency to flip into an alternative form. And in the presence of something else going wrong in the brain, and very often it's inflammation, it could be to, due to an infection, there may be genetic causes, we find it a lot in athletes who bang their heads a lot and have repeated head injuries, but in an environment where for whatever reason there is chronic inflammation in the brain, this flipping switches in a way that the misfolded form now is able to begin replicating the prion form. So what we know is genetics play some role, but probably only about 10%. So most people who get Parkinson's and the other neurodegenerative diseases, it's sporadic. Something happens at random and the misfolded prion form escapes whatever control normally recognize and stops it. So, but once it starts, it's self-propagating. Once we can detect the misfolded prion-like form, it's like having a virus. It's like having COVID in terms of at least recognizing there's a disease process going on that can grow and spread all on its own and eventually will. So it really is diagnostic. We don't find these misfolded forms in people who don't have the disease. That's really fascinating. So can a person basically live very normally with low levels of this and it comes to a certain concentration, I guess, that then you would say, this is the disease? That's exactly right. So what we believe happens now 
is that while we think of Parkinson's and the other related diseases as diseases of aging, because they appear most frequently for people in their 60s and beyond, they probably actually begin 20 years earlier. So if it begins on at the highest frequency at 65, then somewhere around 40 to 45 is when it tends to begin. But as you have said, it's silent for that time. We don't know it's happening, or there are at least very, very subtle signs until, as you say, enough has accumulated. And what accumulates here is silently the presence of these prion-like forms of these proteins, alpha-synuclein, in the case of Parkinson's, is killing brain cells in certain specific regions of the brain one by one. And over 20 years, suddenly enough of those cells no longer function and we begin to see symptoms. So with the technology, with the testing that you have developed, are you then able to see this early on? Could you see it happening at, say, talking about those ages, say at age 45? Well, we have some data Um, research data using our technology that indicates that before there are any symptoms or any objective signs of the disease, we can detect the presence of these misfolded proteins and it predicts disease at least 15 years later and there's no reason to think we couldn't do it two decades, 20 years in advance. It is a very, very sensitive test. That you know, that does sound very exciting. I, I imagine you're very excited by that. Well, I'm excited because by, we believe, um, it's, it's true of many diseases, that early detection empowers early prevention. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is we've just discussed that over 20 years, what happens silently is nerve cells, brain cells are dying that control, in the case of Parkinson's, our movements and that this happens over 20 years. So the earlier we know there's a problem, the more options we have to either stop it or at least slow it down. And at an early stage, if you slow it down 10, 20, 30%, that could push the time when symptoms appear back by 10 years or more. However, a 30% improvement when something's already gone means that we're still getting worse. We're just getting worse at a slower rate, and that's not as desirable. Exactly. So at what point would a person actually get tested, be tested? Uh, You were mentioning athletes, and I can sure see that. We're always so concerned about concussions and the brain trauma that occurs that can translate into something like this Parkinson's. Sure. So the time really depends, and so we could think of various scenarios, but let me say first that our test is a validated clinical test, so it can only be ordered by a doctor, and it's usually a neurologist, but to do this, they would need to have some reason to believe that there's a problem. So that could be, as you said, someone who's worried because they've had multiple concussions. It might be someone who has a family history because, as we've discussed, probably 10% of cases of Parkinson's are related. They're familial and genetic. 
In other cases, they may show some very subtle early signs of the disease, and there are several early signs. They're not absolutely specific for Parkinson's, but they tend to increase suspicion that something might be going on. And these symptoms might occur, again, 10, 15 years in advance of sufficient symptoms to make a diagnosis. So I think those are the major use cases for the test right now. So looking at Parkinson's specifically, and and so real tangible signs would mean the disease has really progressed, what would these signs be? Yeah, so we'll go through a few of these. And again, remembering that they're subtle, so none of them by themselves is indicative that you absolutely have the disease. But there are some subtleties as I go through each one we'll discuss that make them somewhat unique. And if one experiences or you know someone or a family member starts to have some of these symptoms, particularly more than one, and they start and they just get worse and don't go away, it's probably good reason to suspect at least that something's going on. So we'll talk about seven signs that I think are somewhat specific. And the first relates to trouble sleeping or sleep disorders. Now, Everyone at a certain point in their life has trouble sleeping, but these sleep disorders are unusual. They're unusual in the sense that people wake up in the middle of the night, but they wake up thrashing and moving around and kicking. And very often this type of sleep disorder is discovered first by a partner who suddenly starts getting hit in the face or kicked. And so it is this thrashing movement accompanying sleep and waking up that is more specific to Parkinson's. Again, Parkinson's is a disease that comes about by destruction of regions in the brain that help us control our movements. And it may be that the same regions also help us separate movements in our brain during dreaming from movements in reality. But whatever the cause, people start thrashing and acting out their dreams. So that's the first. The second is a general, we say stiffness, but suddenly people, everyone who, your whole life you learn to do certain things. You learn to walk, you learn to run. If you're an athlete, you just learn certain motions. Suddenly those become difficult and they're no longer done with the same ease and facility that they've always been done. And one of the signs of this stiffness when it begins to relate to something like Parkinson's is in many people, suddenly our handwriting, which our signature, for example, is indicative of who we are. We use it for identity. We find that our handwriting gets very small. The whole idea of just writing your signature no longer is done with great ease. And so writing becomes cramped and very small because those movements are no longer easily performed. The third is voice changes. And there are two types of voice changes. One is that we find that because if we have a very early stage of this disease, that our brain starts moving faster than our throat and our mouth and our vocal cords can keep up. So you're used to speaking, you're used to singing, you know, your voice is second nature and suddenly it requires extra effort to speak clearly. And in very often, this is the sign where actors and singers 
first detect the disease. They can't control their voice. They can't make it louder. It may waver. And so, again, it's all related to this loss of control of movements that some of these movements we don't think about. We're so used to them. The fourth are posture changes. So someone may find or you may see in a loved one that they're suddenly leaning to the side, either side, or leaning forward or leaning back. And again, it's because walking normally or standing, we've learned how to do this. All of our muscles work together. When you have a brain-based movement disorder, this is not always possible. And so by leaning to one side or leaning back or forward, people tend to start falling. And that's a sign. Uh, The fifth is fatigue. Again, we can all be fatigued. It's not a highly specific sign. But when it occurs in conjunction with one of the other signs, so one might be tired just because movement, just because walking, normal activities now require conscious effort to do them, that we can become exhausted. Uh, The sixth is one that I would have said until about a year and a half ago was the most specific sign that really triggers suspicion about Parkinson's, and that was a sudden, unexplained loss of smell and taste. And it tends to be permanent in people who have really early signs of Parkinson's. However, over the last year and a half, unfortunately, with the pandemic, uh, COVID-19, this is one of the major signs. So it's less specific now, but hopefully as the pandemic wanes, we'll find that new onset of loss of smell and taste, again, becomes a relatively specific sign for early onset of a brain-like disease related to Parkinson's. And the last, again, very, very common, constipation. However, in this case, it's due to just what we've been talking about, movements. So in this case, it's movements in the gut that no longer happen normally and naturally. And so it's a sudden onset And it doesn't get better. And so it's actually one of the most common signs. Now, so in summary, none of these signs in and of themselves is specific, but two or more together or with some of the subtleties I've mentioned is a good reason to begin to suspect there might be a problem and to speak with one's primary care physician and potentially a neurologist. So a couple of things about that. As these symptoms become more prominent in that way, the disease already has had quite some progression? Fair, but not enough for the full diagnosis. It still might be 10 years away. So this would be a good time to intercept and start a treatment focused on it. But I understand that there's been a a difficulty or it's there are so many question marks around being able to get an accurate diagnosis. Yes, it's for all the reasons um, we've discussed. These are subtle diseases. They progress over a long period of time. The symptoms tend to overlap with a lot of other symptoms. So even at later stages, some of these signs Some movement disorders can be caused by drugs, just normal drugs that we're taking, legal or illegal. They can be caused by other diseases. So even in the hands of the most skilled physician, 
with experience looking at these movement disorders, it's probably fair to say that as many as 20% are misdiagnosed. So that could, it's probably 20% overcalled, 20% undercalled. And so it, it's a challenge even for the most skilled physicians. So what's important here is to develop molecular objective tests with biomarkers that are closely linked to the disease. And that's what we at Amprion and others are doing. And we feel that we're now ready to begin doing a definitive molecular diagnosis, at least for Parkinson's, another disease caused by alpha-synuclein called Lewy body dementia that looks like a combination of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So for those diseases, a molecular diagnosis as early as possible may be able to have a, a significant impact. And again, a person would be working with a physician. So as they become more aware of this testing, they could access it? Or is it something that is readily available or will be readily available across the country? Yes. So we are setting up, we now have a, a validated licensed test. So probably beginning in the next week or two, a physician can order this test, send an appropriate sample, and within 10 days to two weeks, we can give back an answer that either we detect these prion-like forms of misfolded synuclein, or we do not. And generally, if we do, that means that there's an active disease and that the symptoms, whatever reason someone is suspecting this, is almost certainly due to this sort of a degenerative neurological process. So a question then about what is the sample that would be taken? So in this case, we're looking at a brain disease. And so the best way to see what's going on in the brain, especially early, that we've found and we've compared a number of samples. And if we use one drop of spinal fluid, that is the best diagnostic accuracy that we can obtain. It's significantly better than using other samples. So right now, that is the sample for which we believe we can give a highly accurate diagnosis. In the hands of a skilled and knowledgeable neurologist or other physicians who look at these diseases, this is relatively easy to obtain, but it is slightly more invasive than just drawing blood. And we're developing the technology for blood. It doesn't have the sensitivity. There isn't as much of these biomarkers, these prion-like forms of protein in the blood compared to the spinal fluid where they're much higher and still at a very low concentration. So fascinating. So then if it's determined that, yes, the disease, Parkinson's, or if it's the the dementia that you mentioned. Yeah, the Lewy body dementia. Lewy body dementia. What then happens? Are there medications? What kind of treatment is involved? Yeah, well, a great question. Unfortunately, there are no cures today. There's mm. not a drug you can take that is shows a high probability of stopping the disease dead in its tracks. Although 
There are more than 500 clinical trials ongoing today for patients in the United States, and these involve everything from lifestyle changes to drugs to devices. So one of the first things that someone can do once they know they have this, this disease and yet they don't have full symptoms is one option is to enroll in a clinical trial. The clinical trial works, then it is possible that there'll be a cure or at least a significant slowing of the disease. And if not, one can learn and contribute to research to help others. And one can enroll in these things serially based on the rules of each clinical trial. So to start with, you can improve your chances of a dramatic change by enrolling in one or more clinical trials. Second, there's now some pretty strong data that changing your lifestyle aggressively in fairly straightforward ways can slow down the disease. And so the two most obvious are diet and exercise. And fortunately, it's the same diets and exercise regimens that we would use for cardiovascular disease. So more aerobic exercise, strength exercise, movement exercise, and as well, eating something, um, some sort of a Mediterranean diet, relatively low in fats, fresh vegetables, uh, things like olive oil. And so th the evidence is there that this can slow down the disease. So one can be proactive immediately to do this. And then the third is one can sort of rearrange priorities in life. If you know that you have a disease and you find out at age 50 that by 65, it may be difficult to travel and travel is very high on your list, you have the option to shift things in time a bit and hit some things on an important list and do them earlier while doing the first two, while working for some sort of a cure or slowing by enrolling in a clinical trial and changing lifestyle. So it is not that there's nothing that can be done. And it is my belief that with these 500 clinical trials, one or more of these will have a significant impact within the next 10 years, meaning that there are clinical trials ongoing right now that probably are using drugs or devices or changes in behavior that are likely to have a very significant impact within the next 10 years. Very exciting. This must excite you. Yes. Well, this is the reason to have a test. The combination of some sort of an effective intervention plus early diagnosis is the way to change the course of this disease. And what we didn't discuss is Parkinson's, for reasons not completely understood, is growing in numbers outside more than any of the other neurodegenerative diseases, even more than the dementias. So we know the population is aging, so all diseases related to aging are increasing in incidence and prevalence, meaning more new cases every year and more total people diagnosed with the disease. However, Parkinson's is greatly outstripping uh, any of the other neurodegenerative diseases. Some people think it might be environmental, but no particular 
environmental toxin has been identified. Nevertheless, this is a growing problem, and so it's great to have this discussion today. Early diagnosis, you know, and early intervention, early prevention is probably more and more important to more and more people. And you certainly are doing such great and important work in this regard, so that certainly feels optimistic in this regard. So to get more information, let's mention a website where people can really get more details than what we've been able to share this morning. Yes, thanks so much. So at Amprion, what we try to do is to look through all sorts of posts, of literature, of scientific papers, of clinical papers, and we try to curate those that we think might be of maximum interest. So we have a website, and it is www.amprionme, and that's spelled A-M-P-R-I-O-N-M-E.com. And one can sign up for newsletters. Uh, One can learn more about the test, as we talked about, about Parkinson's, about Lewy body dementia. And again, what we try to do is curate information from sources all around the world that we believe are credible. And then we discuss why we think these are credible and might have an impact. Also, for those who are more comfortable just on social media, we are on most social media outlets at at Amprion Me. So the at sign and A-M-P-R-I-O-N-M-E. Perfect. Well, you have been a perfect guest, Dr. Lebovitz. I'd so appreciate all these insights and your very clear way of expressing them. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I want to thank you. We have to work together. There are things that people like myself and my colleagues can discover, but they're not very useful if we can't get them out to people who might need this information. And I'm privileged and honored to be able to spend this time with you.